Well, good evening, everybody. We're in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 26 today. Just to continue where we left off last time, okay? I'm going to recap a little bit of what we got into, um, where Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And you go, what weakness? Well, the weakness he talked about in verse 25 when he says, Look, we're hoping for what we don't see, and we're waiting for it with patience, referring to the glorification of the saints. We're, we're, we're hoping for now. Now, hope is not, um, I don't know, this wishful thinking. Hope is eager expectation and confidence um, that something is going to happen. So biblical hope is not the same as what you might call the, the, the cultural sense of hope. How the culture defines hope is wishful thinking. I, I hope it happens. Biblically, hope is an eager expectation and a confidence that something is absolutely going to happen. And we hope for what we don't see. That's what the scripture says. And we're waiting for it with patience. And while we're waiting for it patiently, through suffering, through temptation, through heartache, through lack, through, through you know, struggle, through loss, um, through death. Verse 26 says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. Now, this is not an absolute statement about every moment of our lives, right? This is just sometimes, right? I am weak and the spirit needs to step in and help me when I don't know what to pray as I ought to. This isn't to say we have zero knowledge of what to pray for at any given moment. No, the scripture actually guides and actually gives us language for our prayers. So we don't know what to pray for as we ought to, right? In the middle of waiting for what we patiently believe God is going to bring us. Um, But the spirit himself intercedes, which is to step in and help us be a mediator of sorts. He intercedes and acts as the middleman for us with groanings too deep for words, okay? By the way, we're in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, for those of you that are wondering. So the Spirit of God here is helping us in our weakness. Our weakness here, again, is that sometimes throughout life, we don't know what to pray for as we ought to. And again, this is not an absolute statement about every single moment of your life. Some people will take this as, you can never know what God really wants you to pray. Really? I think Scripture gives us language for our prayers, I think God actually leads our prayer time through his word and by his spirit. And I think Jesus actually gives us a very clear model and outline and even a framework for what prayer should be. So there are times where in our human weakness, we're just not able to wait for what God has promised. And we start to grow discouraged. We start to grow impatient. We start to grow distracted which is exactly what Israel you know, struggled with when, it, when Moses goes on Mount Sinai and he's up there 40 days and 40 nights. And then Israel gets bored and essentially they lose hope that Moses is ever coming down and they say, well, what happened to Moses? He's probably gone. All of their faith, all their trust was in Moses rather than the God leading them, leading Moses. And so they've got, you know, they made an idol out of the gold that God gave them after plundering the Egyptians and they didn't wait for patiently what God promised and what Moses was going to bring down, which is the law. And so now we see in the new covenant, the spirit himself intercedes, steps in, acts as the middleman for us, right? With groanings too deep for words. This is the spirit of God actually like praying for us. Now, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints. That's right. It's repeated right there again. The spirit is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. 
That's why the Spirit is helping us because I don't always know what this is. I don't always know the very specific will of God for my life. I don't know where he wants me to live always. I don't always know, you know, where, what relationships he wants me to get into. I don't always know what job to get into or, you know, what role to play in the congregation that I'm locally involved in. So the will of God is not always explicitly clear to me. Therefore, the Spirit of God is interceding presumably behind the scenes for the saints So the Spirit of God perfectly understands the mind of God, right? And God who searches the hearts of men. That's that's what's underlining this. God who searches the hearts of men knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And I'm not adding to the text. If you read contextually, that's exactly what he's saying. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. Is that not encouraging? That the Spirit of God is actually interceding and praying and stepping in on your behalf for us according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, now who are those that, uh, that Paul is talking about? Those who love God, believers, those who are in Christ, those who believe the gospel. Okay, we know that for those people, all things work together. All things. Not some things, not kind of a few things, not, not like a huge list of things, but not others. All things means absolutely in the Greek, everything. So we know as believers, as the Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God that we might not be aware of, I might not know the will of God, but what I do know is that God is working all things together for those who love God, which is me, and it's working together for our good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, there's a kind of calling, which is the absolute calling from the gospel, Now, there's a different calling, which is the invitation into the gospel. But Paul talks about how we have this beautiful calling and to live worthy of the calling, live worthy of the gospel, live, live out the calling on your life. As believers, there's a specific call on your lives, a set of expectations, uh, a purpose, the ability to walk out what God is, you know, really desiring us to walk in. And God is working all things together for good. Now, and again, I want to underscore this. All things really means even your failures, even your mistakes, even your mishaps, even the decisions you really planned never to make and you did it anyway. Everything is working together for good. That, now, that's not a license to sin. That's not a reason to stay in a place of darkness and continue in failure and, and just always give yourself over to you know the flesh. This is hope in the midst of the times where we fail that God is working all things together for our good. And I promise you that really does mean all things. God is not limited to what he can work with. And again, the ultimate plan of God is moving human history in the direction of heaven and earth being united in Christ, new creation, taking over this old world and Jesus reigning in the new earth. He's working everything for our good in terms of moving human history in the direction of the of everything that God desires. The fullness of human history is going to find its pinnacle and its climax in Christ. And all things are working together for good. We can know that for certain. Now, what is the good that God is working together for those who love him, right? For those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose, right? So the good is according to his purpose. Those who are called are according to his purpose. So watch this. The calling on your life 
matches up with the good he's working together for you. Either way, the good and the calling are moving us toward God's intended purpose for us. For those whom he foreknew, which very simply just means to know ahead of time. He also predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of a son. Very simply, those whom God foreknew are those whom love God and those who are called according to his purpose. We know that from the previous verse. Now, the Calvinists, and I love you, my Calvinist brothers and sisters, I'm not knocking on your faith. What I am saying is the Calvinist, and how I used to read this, is that God is foreknowing, meaning he's predetermining who it is that is going to be called and who it is that's going to love him. Now, I don't see that in the text. What I do see is that those who love God and are called according to his purpose are a category of people. And we know that because believers, saints, those who are in Christ, those who believe in the gospel and trust in the salvation of Jesus, those are foreknown by God, right? God knows ahead of time before we ever existed. He knows who will choose him. Now, the, the person who takes this too far will say, therefore, foreknowledge necessitates predetermination. Now, God predestining us to be conformed to the image of his son is not God predetermining who it is that's going to believe in the gospel and love God and be called according to the purpose. So those whom God foreknows, it very simply means this. God really is omniscient. He really does see everything unfolded, all of human history laid out before him. There's nothing God doesn't know. Every detail of creation from the smallest ant to the, you know, the, the most important human being on the planet who, who's in the most authority and most power, God knows every detail from the beginning of time. That does not necessitate that God is predetermining. In other words, foreknowledge does not necessitate predetermination. Knowledge in and of itself is not causal. And this is just one of the ways you see the, um, the sovereignty and the foreknowledge of God working alongside human responsibility and human free will. So no, no matter what, God is foreknowing, knowing ahead of time who is going to answer the call according to his purpose and who's going to love him and receive the truth and believe the gospel. And God predestined those people that he knew ahead of time. He predetermined that they would be conformed to the image of his son. So what's being predestined here is not the people who believe in the gospel. What's being predetermined is the purpose and how God will treat those who believe in his son. And God predetermined that they will be conformed to the image of Christ, his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now watch. I'm not making this up. I'm not inserting my theology into this. I'm drawing out from the text what it's saying. God foreknows who will choose him. That is not God determining who will choose him. Knowledge in and of itself is not causal in nature. But he does predestine to do something to the category of people that he knows will choose him. He determined they will be transformed to the image of his son. And that's referring to glorification. That's referring to resurrection. That's referring to getting a new glorified body and being resurrected with Christ and reigning in the new earth. We're going to be perfectly conformed to the image of his son. And then you and I go, I thought I was perfect in the sight of God. I thought I was holy. I thought I was blameless and forgiven. I thought God already saw me in the righteousness of his son. He does. This is not talking about positional standing. 
This is not referring to your status and your identity. This is talking about, number one, your sanctification. Number two, it's also talking about the ultimate end goal of the believer's life. You will be perfectly conformed in image, in body, in glorification, in resurrection, in reigning with Christ. You will be perfectly conformed to the image of a son. In other words, okay, your inward status and your reality right now, positionally in Christ, is going to get a glorified body that matches that inward identity and status, okay? So he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, God promises that the good he's working out for those who love him is that we are going to be conformed to the image of a son. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. No decision you make can stop the ultimate glorification and resurrection that is promised to those who trust in Christ. That's exactly what Paul is saying. God has absolutely sealed through your faith and by his grace, he has sealed your eternity. You will be conformed to the image of his son and all things are working together for good, moving us that direction moving human history in the direction of Jesus reigning in the new earth and the believers reigning alongside Christ. All things are working together for good. Even your mistakes, even your failures, even your mishaps, even those miscalculated decisions, even those poor decisions, everything is working together to move us towards ultimate glorification, which is the context here. We're waiting for it with patience, the it contextually in Romans 8 is our resurrection, our glorified bodies, our being raised from the dead to never die again. And so all things are working together, brother and sister. Do you love God? Do you believe the gospel? Do you take God at his word and trust in Jesus alone for forgiveness and salvation? If that's true, there's a promise for you that everything in your life, everything, is working together for good. And that good is not only that God works in all of your decisions into his sovereign plan to redeem and recreate all of creations. It is also this, watch. It's that you would be conformed to the image of a son in terms of sanctification. You go, I don't know what that means. You and I daily need to be transformed into the image of Jesus more and more. I want my thoughts to be more like him. I want my attitudes to be more like him. I want the way I treat people and love people and see people to be more aligned with Christ. I want my character and my fruit and my actions and my words to be more like Jesus. And guess what? God promises that if you are in Christ through faith, you are being conformed to the image of his son. You are being sanctified. You are being transformed. And all things are working together for the purpose of God, what God defines as good. So before you go out and claim this promise when you don't even belong to God, before you as a believer claim this promise when you do belong to God, you need to understand and define goodness the way God does. God defines good as that which conforms us to the image of his son. So the, the question is, do you see goodness in that way? Do you define good as that which makes me most like Jesus? 
Because if you begin to see life through that lens and filter situations and filter decisions and filter mishaps through the ultimate promise that my father is taking everything together and he's working it for my good. When you see through that lens and actually evaluate life through that filter, you can have more peace knowing that even though my life isn't what I want it to be, my father promises he's making me more like his son. And if that's what you want, then you can find peace in this promise. And if you don't care about sanctification and transformation, then this promise won't bring you as much peace and as much comfort as it's supposed to. So no matter what, we're being conformed. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. We're being transformed to the image of Christ. Is that anything that I can stop? No. Can I slow it down by my own poor decisions and work against the plan of God? Sure. Can I stop the ultimate plan of God to sovereignly bring about new creation? No, I I don't have that power. So what I can do is rest in his ultimate promise for his people. That Jesus is ultimately the firstborn among many brothers. Now, the Greek word there for firstborn, all it means is the rightful heir. In Hebrew culture, first century Christianity, in Jewish culture, to be the firstborn simply meant what Hebrews 1 says Jesus is. Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the rightful inheritor of all the estate of his father. That's all it means. He's not created. He didn't come into existence. All throughout the scriptures, it teaches, teaches that Jesus pre-exists time itself, that he came before everything, that it's through him all things exist, that he sustains the universe. He's the heir of all things as the perfect and first resurrected human. He's the firstborn among us, right? So the, if Jesus sets the tone and gives me the example of what God is going to do to me, we're talking about resurrection here. Jesus is the first to come out of the grave. He's the first resurrected human. He wasn't created at his incarnation when he's born of the Virgin Mary. Firstborn, again, is just talking about heirship. He's the rightful heir of all the estate of his father. Now, watch. I want you to tell me if this sounds like any believer in Christ can reject, forfeit, fall away from, or lose their salvation. I just want you to read the text, okay? And those whom he predestined, right here, to be conformed to the image of his son, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now, the interesting thing here, okay, is that in verse 29, foreknowledge comes before predetermination. And the foreknowledge is about the person, the individual. The predestination is about the purpose God has for the individual he knew would choose him, okay? So those whom he predestined, which verse 30 doesn't include the aspect of foreknowledge. It's assumed within the predestination. What God is predestining here, you're going to see in a minute, is for those whom have been called uniquely out of the people of the world, okay? So there's a twofold calling. There is the calling on humanity to come and enjoy and be invited into the kingdom of God, there's a when you respond to that call, you now have the calling of the gospel, the calling of Jesus on your life. 
Like you've been invited into a beautiful, um, unique calling that is for the church. So let me say it like this. The calling, like the parable of the feast in Matthew 22, that invitation, that calling is for all people. But there's a unique calling that is only for those who answer the first call, okay? I think Ephesians 2 would also teach this, okay? Those whom he predestined, he also called. That's why Paul talks about live a life worthy of the calling on your life. Those whom he called, guess what God does to those who actually, you know, answer the call and end up living uh, or end up, you know, being invited into the second fold calling. Well, he promises to justify those people. Those whom he called, he also justified. Have you answered the call of God? Are you now in the twofold, the second fold calling, which is I now am a part of the church. If you are, you're justified. If you believe in Christ, you're justified. If you trust in the gospel, you're justified. You know, I don't know what that means. I didn't go to freaking theology school. Okay, to be justified very simply means to be, and a lot of people like to go, it's just as if you've never sinned. That's cool. It literally just means to be declared right, to be declared acceptable by who? By God. You are declared innocent of your crimes. You're declared legally free to go, legally acceptable and right in the sight of the Almighty. He declared and made an ultimate authoritative decree about you. You are justified. No one else can extend to you that eternal decree. No one else can, you know, decide that you are that. No one else can, you know, change your identity and make you justified. Now watch, those whom he justified, guess what God does? He also glorified. The interesting thing here is that Paul is talking about a future reality in a past tense way. Did you catch it? Now I know that my justification is done. I am past tense. I have been justified. I have been called. Right? And God knew that I'd choose and he predestined the category of believers for being called, for justification. Now, glorification here is a past tense thing. He also glorified. It's done. It's finished. If you're justified, I know you haven't fully experienced the, the full manifestation of your glorification. I just went all Dr. Seuss on you. I get that. But if you have been justified... In the sight of God, it's as if your glorification seems to be already finished. And you go, I don't understand that. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, you and I, when we were raised from the dead spiritually and given spiritual life, we were seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's absolutely insane. That God seats me and positions me with Christ, who is at his right hand in heaven, and I'm positioned with him as if it's already good and done. Because it is. It's finished. It's finished. He justified you, right? Amen? That's finished. It's also glorification is included in that package. Now, let me go to verse 31. Because I know some of you aren't convinced. You're like, I don't know. I'm not saying you have a resurrected glorified body. That's just a part of. That's almost like, let me, let me think of a good analogy. 
Can't think off the top of my head. I'll think of something later. Like this, like this woman says, she says, in the spirit, we're there. Nailed it. That's exactly it. In the spirit, we're there. Absolutely. You just gave language to what I couldn't say. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. By the spirit of God, everything Christ has experienced as the perfect resurrected human, as the first of new creation, he invites us into that. So we're, we die with him to our old life. We're buried with him. That old self is gone. It can still creep up and you feel the remnants or the leftovers or the, of that old sinful nature because we're still in a sinful body, which is exactly why we get a new body. And we're also, you know, we're resurrected with him to spiritual life and we're going to be glorified with him. Everything that Jesus has gone through. Why do you think God took on flesh? This is exactly why Jesus comes to do everything you and I never could. Now, verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? Like, how should we respond to being justified, declared righteous, acceptable in God's sight, adopted? Our glorification is promised. What should we do in response? If God is for us, hello there, Bible read along official. How you doing? If God is for us, who can be against us. And a lot of people take this verse and they make it seem like I'm unstoppable. You're unstoppable in the way God says you're unstoppable. You're unstoppable as you walk with him in the ways of God and stay in the plan of God. You can't claim the promises of God outside of his will. Now, this promise, I will say, well, it's not even a promise yet, this declaration, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's talking about condemnation. It's talking about condemnation. Romans 8.1 opens up by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation. And he's about to talk about, where is it? Who shall bring any charge? Who can condemn? He's, he, he has in mind condemnation here. Okay? So if you and I are free from condemnation, which is the penalty of sin, the just righteous punishment for my crime against God. If I'm free of that because God declares I am and no one speaks a better word than him, then I am free indeed. And guess what? Who can be against us? If God is on your side and he declares you innocent and holy and forgiven, what can we say to these things? Who can stop you? Who can change the verdict of God? Who can speak a stronger, more authoritative word? He who didn't spare his own son, but gave him up, not against Jesus' will. Jesus says, I willingly lay down my life. I give it up for the sheep. I want you to be saved. I've come down to save. No one forces me. This is what Jesus I can summon a legion of angels if I want. I could have all you decimated right now, but I'm not doing it because I'm willingly going to the cross. Now, if God gave up his son for us, how will he not also, with Jesus, graciously give us all things. Now, did you catch that? Did you, did you catch that? If God gave us his treasured, highest, most valuable possession, what's that? His son? If God gave literally the best he possibly could, if Christ came down, not to give us some other 
person, but he gave us himself. What will God not give us? Do you see it? Like all things, the all things are less than the sun. The all things that God gives us and promises promises us in eternity, a glorified body, resurrection, eternal life, the presence of God for all eternity, the reigning with Christ, all these things are less valuable and less significant than the sun. If God already gave his best, why would you ever think he wouldn't give you the lesser things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, God's elect there, you don't have to infuse that idea with all these Calvinistic predetermination ideas. You don't have to do that, okay? You don't have to presuppose all your theology into this idea. Just know the elect are very simply the people of God, okay? So the point is, who can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? Elect, I think it's emphasizing more of the chosen part of our identity. We are elect. And you, I don't know how that's possible. Because Jesus is the true elect chosen of God. And he extends that identity to us. The perfect beloved son. And I encourage you, I'm going to push this all the time. If you haven't already watched my, my three-part series on YouTube called The Only Begotten Son, go watch it. It explains everything about what Christ has done, how, what you have in him, why Jesus is the only begotten, all the language there. You need to go watch that on YouTube. What I want you to see, someone said, how can you buy this book? This Bible, this exact Bible, you can actually find linked in my TikTok profile. Because everyone started asking, where do you get this giant print? What's the version? So I said, you know what? It's just in my TikTok bio, okay? Who shall bring any charge? That's the idea here. If God declares you free, free to go, legally innocent because someone else paid your debt and there's no more charge against your account. If God declares that, who can ever speak a more authoritative word and change that verdict? Who can bring a charge against those who have been chosen by God? It is God who justifies. In other words, watch this. No one else has the authority to change your standing in the sight of God himself. No one else can declare your eternal verdict. No one else has the authority and the power, okay, to declare you either justified or condemned. God has the power to do that. And he graciously gives you all things with his son. His son being the greatest treasure. His son being the best he can give. His son being the only way into the kingdom. And with Christ comes everything else. With Christ comes everything else. Eternal life forgiveness, hope, peace, love, joy, comfort, purpose, everything you're longing for and looking for in this world and looking for in the next relationship and looking up, you know, in, in the next promotion at work and all the money you can get and all the fame and all the influence and all the likes and all the followers, everything you're looking for, the world can't give you. God goes, I'll give you all things. But my son is the best thing. It is God who justifies, declares innocent. No one else has that 
ultimate authoritative um, power. Who can condemn? Like who can push back against God's ultimate verdict that you are justified? Who can push back against that? Who can change that? Who can, who can reverse the eternal decree God has made about you? Who can condemn? Who can charge you with sin? You know, First John talks a lot about how your heart will condemn you. Like I promise you that. And I'm going to say that again. First John tells us when your heart condemns you. When your own flesh rises up to push back against the truth and the promises of God, God is still true, though your flesh tries to deceive you otherwise. Your emotions and your feelings don't, dis- don't get to determine what is true. So whenever you fall into sin and you fail and you mess up, okay, and you fall into the darkness and you stumble off the path of light, guess what? That doesn't change God's eternal verdict about you. That doesn't change your status in the sight of God. That doesn't change your identity in Christ. That doesn't change everything that you have in the person of Jesus that God has waiting for you. It doesn't change that. Your heart will try and condemn you and tell you God doesn't want you. And condemnation, again, is penalty for sin. But accompanied with that comes shame, comes a sense of I am my failure. And God has set you free from that. He has set you free not only from the penalty of sin, not only from death, not only from darkness, not only from the devil. He set you free from every ounce and reason for shame because you're in Christ Jesus. Look, Christ Jesus, the Jewish carpenter from Nazareth that everyone wants to distort, everyone wants to deny historically lived, everyone wants to pollute with their own agenda. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, another translation will say, not only that, he was raised. So Jesus dying, Jesus being raised, is connected to the idea that God justifies, okay? God doesn't justify and declare you innocent and acceptable in his sight unless someone first dies pays for your penalty, takes your death, and then resurrects to new life to make way for your eternal life. No one, no one has done that except Jesus. You're still in your sin if Christ never died and if he never existed and if he never resurrected. Who is at the right hand of God? Now here we have the ascension, okay? We see the death of Jesus, we see the resurrection, and what we often forget, which arguably, in my opinion, is one of the most important events, is the ascension of Christ. He doesn't stay on earth. He ascends, rises to the right hand of the Father, and He indeed is interceding for us. Now hold on. You just told me the Spirit of God is interceding in verse 26. Remember? The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words in the midst of us waiting with patiently for for the ultimate manifestation of our salvation and resurrection and glorification. But also, it's Jesus who is interceding for us. As our perfect 
high priest, as our perfect mediator. Man, go read the book of Hebrews. We're, we're My Bible studies right now that are live on YouTube and TikTok and Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we're going through the book of Hebrews. I encourage you to be there. Like Hebrews is absolute fire. It'll blow your mind. It'll, it'll absolutely raise your affections and your worship and your view of Jesus. Come and join. So, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I want you to see that. If our justification, if my identity in Christ and my salvation and my ultimate eternity are based on the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the mediation of Christ, meaning he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, you know, mediating the new covenant we have as our high priest. If all of this is true, who the heck can separate you from the love of Jesus? I really want you to see what's being emphasized here. Not necessarily the power of God. Now, I'm not saying the love of Christ doesn't reveal the power of God. I'm saying what's in focus here in Romans 8 verse 35 is the specific characteristic of Christ being the love he has. He already talked about God's ultimate declaration of you. He already talked about God's power to sustain and hold you together and and keep you from any charge of condemnation. Now we're talking about how much Christ loves you. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now let let me answer that rhetorical question. It's an absolute resounding nobody. Now watch. Shall tribulation, shall distress, because remember, suffering is in mind here as we await the future glory. So Paul's bringing back into mind all the suffering we'll face as believers, all the persecution, all the giving into sin and fighting and resisting the flesh and and dealing with the shame and condemnation that we think is there, all the degrees of loss and pain and heartache and, and missed out opportunities that we think are good, but it's really God preserving us. All the different aspects of suffering in this world, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine. Like if America actually faces famine, If we actually face a a point in human history where we actually don't have clothes anymore, nakedness, danger, sword, like being put to death, guillotine, as it is written. By the way, the answer is absolutely no. As it is written. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Now who's saying this? Those who are faithful in Christ, not just the apostles, not just those who laid the foundation of the church, not just the prophets, not just those who are really serious about their faith and had a high calling. This is for every believer. We cry out, Lord, for your sake. We're being killed all the day long. This is the church. This is the kingdom of God all throughout human history. We are regarded as, regarded as, key word, Not actually just thought of as sheep to be slaughtered. Like people look at Christians as these tender, weak, meek little fluff balls that are just on their way to ultimate fairy tale land where they'll just be put to death and and that's all there is. And 
the world's persecuting and hating the truth we stand on. We're regarded as just people to be removed from the world. Just like, get out of the way, you dumb sheep. That's how we're regarded. But we know, Lord, it is for your sake. It's not in vain. Whether it's the sword putting to, being put to death, I mean, you have to understand. If the love of Christ would go this far, if the love of Jesus would take us this far, why would I not respond? Why would I not respond with this level of dedication and commitment that really God says he's worthy of? Why would I ever give my life over to the temporary things of this world? Now, some people don't like the idea of being slaughtered. They don't like the idea of being killed all the day long and all throughout human history. Why would I ever sign up for a team that looks to be losing? Because God wins through an apparent loss. How does Jesus conquer death by dying? How does he defeat the spiritual authorities and principalities in the world by dying? In other words, he wins by looking like he lost. Now, I'll tell you, people don't want to sign up for a team that looks like they're losing. In the end, though, it is absolute ultimate slaughter on the part of those rebels of God who lose. And the people of God stand there with Christ reigning in the new earth in ultimate triumph and victory. I don't think we lose in the end, brother and sister. I think we absolutely have the ultimate victory. Now, what it looks like to the world, I could not care less. I do not care what the world thinks about my walking with Jesus because he speaks the final word over my life. He gets to decide the ultimate eternity I face and the direction of my life. He decides that. Honestly, screw what the world thinks about my holiness and my righteousness and my living for Christ. Honestly, screw that. I don't care. Give me Jesus. Now, in all these things, watch. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I want you to see that. He doesn't just say, hey, guys, we have this temporary victory that might come your way. No, in everything. Like, in everything, we are more than conquerors. Not just enough. Not like we barely get by. Not like this fairy tale hope that people accuse you of. We're more than conquerors. I don't, I don't need the world's approval to really hope in the God that I'm serving. I don't need the world's approval to be confident about what I stand on. I don't. I really don't. In all these things, we're more than conquerors. Like the victory you have in Christ, like Paul already said in verse, um, sheesh, I forget where he says, he says the sufferings of this world and this life aren't even worth comparing. It's in verse 18 of the same chapter. He says, the sufferings of this present time, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's coming, to the victory you have, to the ultimate triumph Christ has brought for you. Don't spend your time measuring what you have waiting for you up against the suffering in this life. It's not worth comparing. We're more than conquerors. Now, just because you don't live like it doesn't mean somehow your status and your identity has changed. For I'm sure, Paul says, I'm sure. You think he's confident here? He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life 
How far is this man willing to go with what he's listing out? He says, I'm positive. I'm confident that death, life, man, he goes on angels, demons, principalities. You, you fill in the list. Rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in creation. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see it? So he answers his own question. You don't have to wonder, can something separate us? He goes, no, nothing will be able to. Nothing. And you got to know about my own unbelief and my own, you know, if I choose to walk off the path and if I, and if I choose to reject, bro, if you don't understand the nature of the new covenant and your eternal security in Christ, which doesn't excuse sin and give you a license to live in it. If, if that's how you think about sin, that might be an indication you don't have a new heart and you're really not in the new covenant and you're not a follower of Jesus. Not the only indication, but that might be an indication. Okay, the, go watch my video on YouTube. It's called Eternal Security. Once saved, always saved. Is it biblical? I will absolutely, I, I, I pray to the living God that you'll be convinced that what you have in Christ right now through your faith, it is not something that you can somehow walk away from, reject. That is exactly why God changes your nature and your heart and your mind and your posture towards sin and his laws and his ways. Why do you think God changes everything about you as a response to your faith? Now, people are gonna come on this channel and go, once saved, always saved, isn't, no, isn't true. And they won't watch my video. They won't hear my points. They won't think through this biblically. They'll just hang to their man-made tradition and religion and go, see, it's not. And they'll run to first or second Peter. They'll run to John, uh, what is 15? They'll run to Romans 11. They'll run to all these passages that aren't even saying you can reject your salvation. First of all, Hebrews six, Hebrews, you know, nine or 10 or whatever it is. Okay. I'm telling you, there is absolutely nothing. And if you don't believe in one saved, always saved, that doesn't make you unsaved. I'm just saying it's biblical. Like go watch my video on YouTube. It's actually not that hard to, to find. Just Google above reproach ministry, go to my YouTube channel right now and then search eternal security in my name. I, I promise you, like I promise you when you watch that video, if, if you can show me where in scripture I'm wrong and, and what scriptures I'm twisting and, and misinterpreting, let's talk about it. But don't tell me it's not true before you hear the biblical arguments for why eternal security is Genesis to Revelation, biblical. Okay? So I'll say this. There's nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Now, you have to ask yourself, why Paul emphasizes the love of God? I want you to think through that. He doesn't say the presence of God. Now, of course, that's implied. He doesn't say the kingdom of God. Now, of course, that's implied. He doesn't say the people of God. Of course, that's implied. The point is, no, everyone in human history will not have eternal life. I don't know where that comes from. Nothing can separate us from the love God has for us in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. What's he saying? The love God has for those who are in Christ is fundamentally different than the love he has for the world. And you got to know about that. Read scripture. Go 
and study what Genesis to Revelation teaches about the way God sees and views and responds to the world at large. And then list out how he responds to and how he, what he thinks of those who are in Christ through faith. And tell me if the two kind of loves are exactly the same. The love God has for the world is making salvation available. The love God has for those who are in Christ through faith is a completely different, I'm your father, you belong to me, I've guaranteed all this for you, that kind of love. It's inheritance, it's kingdom, it's reigning with Christ. It's everything that you're made for that you can't have access to without Jesus and some people don't want. Some people don't want what Christ makes available. That's, that's fine. But I'm telling you, the love of God is what you are absolutely made for. The love of God is exactly what the deepest part of you is waiting to be filled with. There's a gaping hole in your soul and in your heart that no relationship, no amount of money, no amount of fame, no abilities, no accolades, no achievements could ever fill. There's a gaping hole in your soul that is made for the love of God. The love of God is everything. Like to be loved and treasured and valued and wanted and chosen the way that God does his people. That is our greatest treasure. That's our greatest boast. That's our greatest delight. There's nothing more that I can, you can give me all this world. It will never compare to the fact that he loves me perfectly to the deepest parts. He loves me fully. He sees everything that I am. He sees every sin I'll ever commit. And he commits to me in spite of all that. And he loves me by his grace. If the love of God is not your greatest treasure, if that's not what you boast about most, forget followers, forget subscribers, forget comments, forget you know money, forget comfort and convenience and houses, forget all that. To be loved by God leaves me not wanting. That's why Psalm 23, the, the psalmist David says, look, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no reason to want anything else. I am so content. He is sufficient. I feel the need to make this available to all of you that we have a discord community. We have a family. Every weekday we gather on the Discord chat. We have Bible studies. We have fellowship. We have Bible studies just for the women, all for the congregation. I mean, you name it. We have prayer times. We have fellowship. We take communion. I mean, there's some of you who are needing community. You're, you're desperate for godly men and women to, to help you follow Jesus, to walk with you, to encourage you, to sharpen you, to call out sin. Like this is the community for you. The Discord community, you can find linked in my TikTok profile. And as I'm talking about the love of God, I just sense that there's some of you who know you're loved by God, but you're not surrounded by people who actually emulate that love. You're not surrounded by people who imitate that love. And so I, I'm telling you, jump in the Discord community. It's not like, oh, that's where God's love is. But I'll tell you, those who know God are going to best represent his love to you. So God's love is experienced not only in community, but it is found and felt and experienced to a deeper level when you're around other believers. 
That's why every weekday we pray with one another as a family. That's why every weekday we're studying scripture and talking through it and and staying on the Discord chat all day because we love fellowship. And I'm encouraging you to grow deeper with other believers, to challenge yourself, to put yourself out there and to say, you know what, I'm going to actually get involved. The love of God is everything. And you need people to constantly remind you of that on a daily basis. And that's exactly what this community is. So if you're looking for my video on eternal security, it's on YouTube and it's titled once saved, always saved question mark. I'm going to pull it up for you. For those of you that uh, are really looking for it, just Google Jason John Camacho or above reproach ministry, which by the way, you can find everything about this ministry at above reproach ministry.com. You can find our podcast, you can find our YouTube channel, you can find our free online Bible study courses. If you want to learn the Bible, learn how to study the Bible like this, we have free online Bible skills courses you can take. The video on YouTube is called Once Saved, Always Saved? Question mark. Just add my name to it, um, add my uh, ministry name to it. And again, uh, online, when you visit the link in my bio, okay, you can check out AboveReproachMinistry.com, our podcast, our YouTube channel. You can purchase my book. We have free online Bible study courses, free weekly study devotionals we release that accompany those free online Bible study courses. You can actually learn how to start reading the Bible and recognizing keywords and trace those out. You can do that today. You can also find, um, geez, not only our study devotionals, but um, all the workshops we do, the trainings, the videos, the shorts, the community. Find me on Instagram. All of this is available completely free, except except um, my book because publishing costs actual money. <laughs> Everything else is free. Um, and if you want this exact Bible, you can find it. I've linked it, the Amazon link there. Um, and so you can go and find that. And I'm going to end there tonight, at least in Romans. But what I want to do is take you guys to 1 John. I'm not done. And by the way, join the Discord community. We have prayer calls every day together, every weekday. Sorry, I'm going the other way. We have Bible studies. We have fellowship. We talk through scripture. We just encourage one another. We have, it's really cool, okay? So I encourage you to join. So I'm gonna take you to 1 John real quick and I really want you to see this. This is, uh, I think it's called like a giant letter ESV. The ESV is the translation. Giant letter is the kind of font, like it's the biggest font you can get. So if you want this for study purposes or for making videos too, you can find that link to my profile. First John, okay, I really want you to see this. I'm just going to read through this entire chapter because my goodness, <laughs> we can't just read portions of this chapter. I want you to see John the Apostle, okay? John the Apostle, he calls himself throughout his writings, the one that is loved by Christ, the one that is loved of Jesus, the beloved of Christ, however your translation gives it. Either way, he identifies, John, he literally identifies with the love of Christ. And I think this is really important that we go here because we just ended talking about the love of Christ for his people. If you don't begin to identify with God's love for you, you'll let other things define you when they don't have the authority to do so. You'll start identifying with your gifts and abilities and talents and people's approval. And you'll start identifying with your achievements and the amount of money you have in the bank as if any of that actually determines your value. It does not. The love of God is ultimately what declares my value once and for all. 
And as those who are in Christ, we have to learn how to say, you know what? The love of God is the only thing that gets to, get, gets to define me. And John throughout his writings will say, he's the one loved of the Father, loved of Christ. Now, now he writes this letter, okay? And he says, that which was from the beginning. And I want you to really hear this in John's voice, or not, in his writings. You can hear his voice in his writings. There's such intimacy. There's such, he's excited, man. Like he's so excited. This is that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. I want you to see the descriptions he uses. Whatever he's talking about, it's from the very beginning. That's why Colossians tells us Jesus is the beginning. He pre-exists time itself. That which we have heard, that which we've seen with our eyes, that which we've looked upon, that which we've touched with our hands. Do you know what he's talking about here? He's talking about Jesus. And you go, no, he's talking about the word of life. That's exactly why John chapter one says, the, in the beginning was the word. And the word became flesh. Like John touched Jesus. The word dwelt among us. He was God and he was with God. And you got, that doesn't make sense. You can't both be alongside someone and be that someone. That's exactly where the Trinitarian language comes in. But the point is, listen to John. The word of life. The life was made manifest. Like the word of life, which was there from the beginning. That you can hear all throughout the Old Testament, echoing through the voices of the prophets and the saints. John has seen him. John has looked upon him. John has walked with him. John has lived with him. John has slept where he slept, ate where he ate, had a meal with the word of life. And that life was actually made manifest. That's what we call the incarnation. Jesus actually comes into the world. He was revealed. That which was concealed in the Old Testament is revealed in the new, right? So the Old Testament is the new concealed and the new is the old revealed. The life was made manifest, revealed, uncovered, and we have seen it. And you go, well, it's not a Jesus because it's an impersonal pronoun there. No, understand that he's talking about the life emanating from Jesus. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. John is not talking about an ethereal concept. John is not talking about a philosophical idea. John is talking about the very essence of life itself. Like if life had arms and legs, if life took on a, like was personified, and if life was embodied, it's Christ. And John's saying, we've seen it. We've touched, we've looked upon, we've heard the one who's from the beginning, the eternal life, which was with the Father. Now there's your language for the Trinity. The eternal life is with the Father. Not the Father himself. Now I'm not saying the Father is not eternal life, but whoever or whatever the eternal life is, it's alongside and some seems to be something that is not the Father himself, but emanates from the Father and was made manifest to us. And again, I want you to hear John's excitement in his writing. 
He goes, he was made manifest to us. We, like the Father, the eternal life who was with the Father in the beginning, he was made manifest to us. That which we've seen, we've heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And you go, well, it doesn't say Jesus is the eternal life. Actually, it does. Actually, it does. John talks about being in Jesus Christ at the end of his book. He is the true God and the eternal life. So eternal life is not a philosophical idea or an ethereal concept. Eternal life is God himself, the true God. Who is he referencing? Jesus. So you can't tell me John's not talking about eternal life as being a person here. It's right there in the text. And John's saying we're proclaiming eternal life itself to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. John is excited and longing for whoever he's writing to to be in fellowship with him. And you go, whoa, what's, what's so great about being in fellowship with John? Here's why. He says our fellowship is with the Father and with his son Jesus. That's why John wants you to have fellowship with him because John is actually in relationship with the eternal, unstoppable, perfect, holy, righteous God. And he really wants you to have fellowship with this God. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the question is, okay, why are these things that John is writing, why are these things affecting the completion of his joy? Because John will have more reason, not reason, John will, ha John will have more joy in more people having fellowship with God and ultimately with John. So John is not saying, I really want you to know God only. He's saying, man, I want you to be a part of this beautiful fellowship called the body of Christ. Now watch, this is the message we've heard, okay? What's the message? Well, it's exactly what he's proclaiming in verse three. He's proclaiming eternal life and the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you is watch, God is light. God is the epitome and the personification and the source and the definition of light itself. And guess what? In, in God, there's no darkness at all. That's why Psalm chapter five, verse four says, no evil can dwell with you. There's no darkness that exists in God. There's no shifting shadow. There's no potential for change. He's immutable, self-existent, unchanging, eternal, and completely reliable. And there's no darkness in him. Now, the reason John states that is because that has to do with the fellowship he's inviting us into. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him, like if you confess to know God while you walk in darkness, you're lying. 
You're straight up lying and you're not practicing the truth. You can't have fellowship with God while tolerating and excusing and loving a life of darkness. This idea of walking, okay? It's not, I, mom- I-, I had a moment of stumbling. It's not, I, I messed up. I had a failure. I, I really had a moment of, 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 of mishap and, I, and I, I truly sinned. I'm sorry. I confess it. That's not what he's talking about. The walking here is a lifelong lifestyle. The walking here is the majority of my life. I live in the darkness. This is not talking about a few failures and a few mistakes. And, you know, throughout my Christian life, I struggle with sin and I fight the flesh and I give in sometimes and I fight and I resist at other times. That's not talking about that. It's saying if you live in the darkness, which is sin and unbelief, and that's your whole life, you can confess all you want that you know God. You don't. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light. And I want you to see here, he's going to define in chapter 2, light being the holiness of Christ and darkness being, um, well, light being the truth here. You can live the truth or you cannot live the truth. You can believe the truth or you cannot. The way into the light is by believing the truth. So if you're still in darkness, that means you've rejected the truth, which brings you into the light. There's no way into the light except through the truth. So again, if you confess to know God while you reject the gospel of Christ, you actually don't know God and you're lying and you know it or you're deceived, self-deceived. But if we walk in the light, now that in terms of what does that look like? Well, believe in the gospel, number one. And this is not talking about a perfected life where all you do is live holy and righteous and you never sin and it's all God and all rainbows and butterflies. This is talking about most of your life. Romans would tell us you see a progressive uh, uh, progressive holiness, progressive obedience. Light is a way of life. Light is a person. So you're either in fellowship with God who is light and then you live a life that is led by him or you don't because he is in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now that's interesting. He's talking about having fellowship with the church. Now he's not saying as long as you stay in the light, you'll have fellowship with one another. The point is when you let the light of God's life of, of, of God lead you into the truth, Right? The truth and, and light are oftentimes synonymous. The point is, when you trust in the gospel and you come into the light of God found in the truth, you now have fellowship with other believers because you're brought into a body. You're not saved just on your own. You're not a lone wolf Christian. It's not you and God against the world and the demons. It's you have fellowship with one another because you all belong to the same God who brings light into your life. So I want you to see the condition here, walking in the light. It's not like uh, the way into fellowship with God is by living holy enough. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, if you walk in the light as God is in the light, well, obviously that proves and the fruit is or the fruit of your obedience proves you have fellowship with one another. In other words, the fruit here is walking in the light, which is the evidence of the fact that you have fellowship not only with God, but with the people of God. Uh, Overcomplicating things, you'll see this in chapter two. And the blood of his son, Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the only thing which cleanses us from what? 
from all sin. So I want you to see the cleansing here is connected to coming into the light. Jesus makes forgiveness available through his blood that was shed for you. If you don't receive that work and trust in the gospel and believe in Jesus, you're not cleansed from your sin. There's no way to wash the iniquity and the darkness of your heart except by faith in Christ. There's no way for all of your crime against God to be completely atoned for and paid for in full without the blood of Jesus. Your soul is still dirty and not clean unless you trust in Jesus to cleanse you. So the point here is your soul needs to be cleansed in order to walk in the light and have fellowship with God and his people. So coming into the light and walking in the light is synonymous with being cleansed from the sin that we have. No darkness can dwell in the presence of God. No sin can dwell in his presence. Evil can't be in his presence. Now, I want you to see this. The blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. If we say we have no sin, now here's what it means to walk in darkness, okay? To walk in the darkness is to deny your sinfulness and your need for Jesus to cleanse you. You can get all religious and spiritual and new agey as, as you want. Nothing you do will get you into eternal life and get you into the eternal life of God and the light of his presence. Nothing can bring you into his presence but the perfect atoning blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ because he alone can cleanse you from sin. You can't. No criminal can do enough good to make up for and change the fact that they've sinned. The judge doesn't look at the criminal and go, well, how much good have you done? That doesn't change the, the, the crime they've committed. Jesus alone can cleanse you. If you say you have no sin, though, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Now he's using us there as the pronoun. But if we confess our sins, in other words, if we come into the light and walk in the light through confession and trust in Christ and belief, guess what? Our God, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of what? Of our sins. In other words, how can Jesus cleanse you of your crime? You're the one that violated God's law. You're the one that committed high treason. I'm the one that committed crime against God. How is it that some random Jewish carpenter from Nazareth can atone for and cleanse me of all the darkness I've committed? That doesn't make any sense. If you confess your sins, God is faithful. And he, like he promises to. And he is just. In other words, he is perfectly righteous to forgive us of sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. In other words, before you can be cleansed, there's a forgiving decree that has to go out from God. He declares you forgiven and your soul is cleansed. How? How, how, how? Because the blood of Christ is perfect and unpolluted. Jesus comes and lives the perfect life that you and I never could. That's why God comes down into our world, his world really, but our corrupted, broken, hopeless world. And he comes down and he assumes human flesh and he meets his own perfect standard in our place. 
And God lives the perfect life you and I never could, but we need to in order to enter into his kingdom. The standard of God is perfection. We fall short of that. So Jesus comes and he never fails, never makes a mistake, never ever sins. And he plays by his own rules, meets his own law in our place as one of us. And he goes to the cross and he stays there willingly until the full force of sin is released on him. And on Christ in his flesh, all the sin of the world is punished. All of our crime is poured out on him. And the penalty of sin, Jesus takes it. And he dies our death. He dies to sin. Sin itself is condemned in the flesh of Christ. And he pays our debt. He takes every ounce of the just punishment and the penalty our crime deserves. He takes it upon himself willingly because he so loves you. And he dies and he goes into the tomb and he's buried. And three days later, he breaks forth in power and authority. And he conquers death and he conquers sin and he conquers the devil and every demon that would ever come against you. And it's through him alone that you can be forgiven and cleansed. No one else has done that. No other religious guru is alive that's established the traditions of their faith. No no other superstitious man that, that died rose to life. Jesus alone. His sacrifice is sufficient because he's eternal and infinite in nature. That's why he assumes human flesh to be what none of us ever could And if you confess your sin, God promises he's faithful and he's just. In other words, he's righteous and he's fair to forgive you because someone else paid your debt. Someone else took your crime upon themselves. And Jesus is not just some random perfect guy that never made a mistake. He actually is the perfect atoning sacrifice, God in the flesh. That's why you can be cleansed. That's why you can be declared free from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. God's word is in you and you are in the light and you have fellowship with him and his people. If you actually confess your sin and believe that God is faithful and he will forgive you because his son made way for that forgiveness his son made way for your cleansing and your freedom and your eternal life and your relationship with him his son made way for all of that you either take god at his word and believe he's faithful and he's just to do it or you don't god's forgiveness is not only faithful it's just Because someone else paid the debt, took the penalty, took all your crime upon themselves and died your death and lived the life you never could. This is what Christ has done. And you either believe it or you don't. And you either deny your sinfulness or you admit it. And you also admit, I can do nothing to change my state of sin. So I need Jesus to do it for me. You can't change your past, but Christ can't. You can't change your future in terms of your eternity. You can't change your sinfulness or the crimes you've committed against God. You can't, you can't come into relationship with God on your own terms and by your own obedience. But Jesus, he can do all that for you. Salvation is a free gift. It's by God's grace. And grace is unearned, unmerited, undeserved kindness and favor. This is the gospel. 
you can have fellowship, relationship with God. You can be free from your darkness. Your past can be erased. You can come into the truth and the light. You can be cleansed. You can be forgiven. You can be free from all unrighteousness if you would just believe that Jesus alone has made way for you to be free from all sin. That assumes you confess your sin. And I'm preaching the gospel on purpose because I know there are people in this chat right now that think they're good when they're not and they rely on their obedience and you trust in your works and your religious duty and you trust in your knowledge of God and what you know about his, his word and you trust in your ministry. None of that can get you into the kingdom of God. None of that is impressive to God. Jesus is and Jesus can get you into his kingdom. So I'm telling you, cleanse your hands, you double-minded and come to Christ and admit, I can't do anything to fix my sin problem. I can't change my crime. I can't reverse my past. I need Christ. Someone says, sorry, but the Bible is a mistranslated book. That assumes you have the correct translation to show me where the Bible is actually mistranslated. I'd love for you to show me that. And if you don't have that, then you are making it a baseless accusation. And your claim has no authority. It's illegitimate. So you can either show me the true translation. Otherwise, you don't really know whether the Bible has been correctly translated according to your terms or not. For those of you that don't know, this is, this is my online ministry that God has called me to to support my wife and my two kids. This is my full-time job, okay? And if any of you want to check out everything we have, I'm telling you, we have a Discord community which is not for trolls or for people who are jerks and disrespectful, but we have a discord community where every weekday we have prayer calls together. We jump on the call and, and the discord and we pray with one another and we have Bible study and we have fellowship and we have chats. Join the discord, man. You can hit me up on Instagram if you have questions or want further explanation on some things I didn't clarify. You can find everything on our website. Go to my TikTok profile, okay? If you go to my TikTok profile, you'll find every link. The Discord, my website, our podcast, our YouTube channel, all the trainings we have. We have completely free online Bible study courses. Like if you want to learn how to read the Bible like this, you want to learn how to recognize keywords and trace keywords throughout a, throughout a book, like we have free online Bible skills courses. We have free uh, weekly devotionals we release alongside those free online courses. We have completely free Bible study workshops. We have free trainings, free videos, free teachings. All of this is completely free. So if any of you have been totally impacted by this and the Lord is leading you to, again, this is the only way to support my wife and two kids. So if God is leading you to, you can give one time through Cash App, through PayPal, through Venmo. And again, I trust God to provide. You don't need to give to be a part of any of this, to enjoy any of this. All of this is completely free. And it's only free because of generous supporters like you because this costs time and energy and effort and studying and resources that get purchased. This costs a lot. <laughs> it's not free. But other people make this completely free to everyone around the planet. So again, the podcast, the YouTube channel, the free online courses, the free study devotionals, the free workshops, the community on Discord, our prayer calls, all of it, all of it 
is completely available to you. I'm telling you, access every resource we have. Like utilize everything that you have at your disposal here in this ministry. Join the family, get in the calls, have fellowship. Some of you have been watching for too long and it's time for you to get involved and actually start sharing your gifts and get involved and play a role and grow with the community. You can also find this Bible linked in my TikTok profile, this exact Bible that I have. Um, if you, everyone's been asking me, where do I get this Bible? You can find it linked in my TikTok profile. Everything is there. Everything. So I'm going to push you guys there. Go check that out. Um, above reproach ministry.com. Like tomorrow we have a Bible study at 10 a.m. Eastern standard time. We're going through the book of Hebrews. We're going through the book of Hebrews. We're on chapter five. It's getting a little dicey and, um, it's good stuff. And if you guys want to check out if you guys want to check out all the teachings I've done and, and the, we have playlists on our YouTube channel. Okay, so go to um, my YouTube channel linked in my bio right now and you can find all the different playlists by topic. If you want to learn, if you want to hear what the Bible says about hope or depression or anxiety or eternal security or Jesus being God in the flesh, all this is available to you. Okay, so I, I trust that God will lead you how he wants. Uh, you can join the Bible study tomorrow live on YouTube or live on Discord, or, or Zoom, I mean, not Zoom, freaking, I'm out of my mind. You can join the Bible study live on YouTube, or on TikTok, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, usually you can find the event on my TikTok profile, and then every weekday we have a prayer call together when we grow in community, and we share perspectives and talk through scripture, and again, pray with one another, and we're just growing, man, so I encourage you to come, come, come and be a part of it. Um, so come and join. All right, guys, that's enough of that today. I want to pray for us. Lord Jesus, bless your name. Thank you for all that we have because of you. We praise you. God, strengthen your people, strengthen their weak knees for those who are suffering and going through heartache. God, remind them of the truth of your word that they hold on to. And I pray you'd continue to grow this family in Jesus name. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you either tomorrow night or tomorrow morning. Keep moving towards Jesus. Bye, guys.